So for those who don't recognize me, uh, my name is Greg Davidson. Uh, I am Plan B for Sunday morning here because uh, I believe a lot of some of our leadership are like off at other places doing official business. Uh, the theme of this quarter is major themes that run throughout the entire Bible. Now, there are many things in life where we are surrounded by things, by ideas, by even words that we will be completely oblivious to until somebody points it out and then we can't help seeing it everywhere. Now, before I give you an example, does, does anybody just have like, that just brings something to mind that you're just dying to share? Buy a new car and what? And you think it's unique. You get a car that you think this is, nobody else has this, and then as soon as you drive out of the lot, like every third car is like, same car, same car, same car. So my wife and I had, Christy had an experience several years ago where our son said, you know, in, the, uh, in movies, whenever a phone number is mentioned, in order to avoid some poor household getting a gazillion just prank calls because it was in the movie, that every area code always starts with 555 because that doesn't actually exist anywhere in the nation. And both of us said, nah, if they'd done that, we would notice it. He's like, no, it's true. We were very skeptical. And then movie after movie after movie, 555, some number, 555, some number. We can't help but see it now. So the connection to this quarter, if we do this right, then chances are that you will start to see things that you didn't realize are everywhere in scripture that you didn't really notice, you kind of read over it until somebody points it out and then you start seeing it everywhere. So this morning we are looking at God's temple presence, Genesis 2 Revelation, and Les and Brian I always appreciate their humility when you know, they frequently will say, I am getting this information or this material from some source, right? They're not claiming that they just are the first one to ever say this. So I'm gonna follow uh, in suit here, which the next slide, you're gonna think there's a little irony in here because a lot of what you're gonna hear this morning comes from this book, Manifold Beauty of Genesis 1, which I'm a co-author on. Having said that, there is very little in this book that is completely unique to Ken Turner or myself. Uh, what we did was to mine, this is just a small subset of other people's work to bring it together in a, in a unique fashion. But the material has largely, the work has been done by other scholars. So I'm gonna ask three questions this morning, get a little bit of interaction with you all. And initially, these questions are gonna seem like they are completely detached, like nothing to do with each other. So briefly, first question, the Garden of Eden. What kind of environment do you envision the Garden of Eden being in? Like, you know, African savanna, alpine meadow, Amazon jungle, I mean, just what, what, what comes to mind when you think of the Garden of Eden? Trout stream. A lush jungle, like up in the mountains, down in the 
basins by big river? Colorado Springs. Wait, tomatoes. <laughs> what? Something majestic but safe. All right, so we're going to take the next question. Uh, what does the Bible mean by God resting? And in particular, what I'm interested in here is that after the six days of creation, it says God rested. And some scholars have even noted that within each of the days, the fact that it doesn't say there was morning and evening, the fact that it says evening and morning one day was actually an indication of daily rest, right? And there's nobody around to rest but God. So what does that mean for God to rest? Thoughts? A little louder? Just a, a cessation from activity. So he's, okay. Yes? Uh, kind of sitting back and enjoying it. So just enjoying what has been made. Okay, other ideas? Uh, setting an example for his people to do. So even if he didn't need himself that rest, perhaps he's doing this by way of example. Last one, what is our sense of the purpose of a temple? And for this one, I'm not that interested or, or looking specifically at the biblical temple, but just the notion globally that people have of a temple. What is the purpose and function of a temple? A place of worship where God dwells. Uh, something that is set apart. Anything else? So uh, combining all of those, something that's set apart, a place where God dwells, a place where we can come to worship, or to seek, in many cultures, it's a place you would go to seek that God's favor. Uh, so we're gonna find, hopefully, how all of these tie together. Now. Over the last 150 to 200 years, there have been amazing archeological discoveries in the Fertile Crescent, in the Mesopotamian region, which is the cradle of human civilization, right? The oldest civilizations are found there. And they've discovered these libraries that have given glimpses into the, those first civilizations and what they thought and what their theology looked like and what their, you know, how they understood the gods or, or a god. And some of the things that have come out of that have been some really interesting similarities with what's found in the Bible and some marked differences. On those similarities, before I say anything else, I have to give this qualifying observation that you have one group of people that as soon as they see the similarities, they immediately go to, ah, see, they're just borrowing from the dominant culture around them. Nothing unique, they're just taking what the folks around them had and just tweaking it a bit. In response to that, you've got another group that say, oh, no, 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 They're, it's completely different. And they spend all of the time trying to show how it's unique and different from the surrounding cultures. But there's a third group that I would argue are more reasoned that say, look, Israel was living in the midst of a land, and in fact, 
were in the land of Egypt for over 400 years, they are immersed in these cultures, and would not God have tapped some common understanding of the cultures of the area in order to illustrate his truths about himself and his kingdom? Where some things don't need to be corrected. You can simply tap the idea to illustrate something about Yahweh God. Or, in other cases, referring to those and saying, no, I am distinct, that is incorrect theology. Let me show you the correct way. So, enter the idea of a cosmic mountain. <clears throat> Pervasive in the region of Mesopotamia, in these ancient civilizations, is the idea of a cosmic mountain where the gods, in their desire to interact with people on earth, would go to a place where the heavens met with earth. They picked some mountain where that mountain is the center of the, the universe, as it were. And some features of that cosmic mountain, we just mentioned where heavens and the earth meet, typically were described as having divine gardens, healing waters, and a timelessness where things are preserved from the ravages of time. And interestingly, there's a common theme that a temple was where a god rested. So we're gonna revisit that idea of rest in a few minutes. Before I do that, just emphasizing the Bible's use of this cosmic mountain motif, that if we look um, at, and this is now revisiting my first question about what's the environment that you think about when you think of Eden? That when Ezekiel was referring to, or it's a prophecy against the king of Tyre, he draws an analogy with the creation. And he says this, you were in Eden, the garden of God, you were on the holy mountain. You were blameless in your ways from the day you were created until unrighteousness was found in you, so I cast you out as a profane thing from the mountain of God. That idea of the mountain of God is repeated throughout scripture. We see this cosmic mountain motif repeated in things like Moses and Israel at Mount Horeb or Sinai, the temple on Mount Zion, Elijah confronting the prophets of Baal on Mount Carmel, repeated, sin sacrifice, uh, repeated sins of the kings of Israel and Judah by not doing their sacrifices on Mount Zion, but on many high places, other high places, Jesus' transfiguration on the mountain, and Ezekiel 40's vision of a final temple on a high mountain. Now, the idea of high places, that's another one of those things that's repeated through Scripture that we often miss. Now, I'm going to put up a slide that has way too much information on it, a bunch of verses. We're not going to go through them all. I'm just going to put it up to highlight that we've got all of these verses through 1 Kings, 2 Kings, many of them repeated in 1 and 2 Chronicles, where the sins of the kings or the people repeatedly come back to this idea of sacrifices on the high places. So every one of those verses makes reference that even for the good kings, that we have these statements that, and yet the people still continued 
to sacrifice on the high places. And this isn't even the first slide, or it is the first slide. It's not the only slide. There's another one. It continues through all of First and Second Kings. Now, the idea was not that you shouldn't go up to a mountaintop to do something. It's this idea that the cosmic mountain, there is a place that God is choosing to come down and rest to dwell among his people. And to simply choose another site is effectively saying, I'm not interested in you. I've got, I'm going to direct my attention to these other gods. It's also interesting to me that as you read through scripture, the idea is not that there is some physical piece of geography where that was a holy mountain and God's fixed to that place. Wherever God takes his presence becomes that holy mountain so that you see it at Mount Sinai and then in Mount Zion and meeting at, Mark, at, at Carmel. So you see it being taken to different geographical places but it's still singular. All right, so coming back and revisiting this idea of the cosmic mountain where we've got these culturally understood, widespread culturally understood themes, and I really wanna focus on this last one, that it, the temple was a place where God rested. We're gonna see this over and over again. Because in the ancient mindset, Resting was not just cessation from activity, nor was it something that you did when you got tired and worn out. The idea of divinity coming and resting is reflected by this statement. Divinity rested in a temple that meant taking up residence, dwelling or abiding with the people. The very opening statements of Genesis, verse one, uh, chapter one, verse two, and the spirit of God was hovering over the face of the waters. Now, there's a lot of people that will talk about the waters representing chaos, and in fact, in the ancient mythologies, there's battles that take place between the creator God and a god of chaos that has to be defeated and subdued. And there is a sense of this, these waters being disordered, of being somewhat chaotic. But rather than personifying that as, as a god of chaos or something where a war has to be engaged, the Genesis story paints a very different picture where you've got God seeing this disorder and yet he's hovering over it. And if we look at other places in scripture where we see the same wording, when God is speaking of his care of Israel in Deuteronomy, he says, as an eagle stirs up its nest and hovers over its young, same Hebrew word, uh, root words, he spread his wings, he caught them, he carried them on his pinions. So you have this sense of God hovering over the waters, looking for a way to essentially build a nest, a build a place to abide. When we look at God taking Adam and putting him in the garden, the literal translation of put him in the garden is to rest him in the garden. 
with that same idea of abiding, of dwelling, of walking. Interestingly, when Adam and Eve are then given the tasks of to work and to keep the garden, those Hebrew words are the same words that are used of the priesthood when they're commanded to take care of and guard the temple. So we're seeing these analogies, these parallels between creation and the temple, the place of God's abiding and dwelling. Then we get to Genesis 3, and for much of my life, I, I would always wonder, what the heck is up with God walking in the garden in the cool of the day? Why is that even in there? Like, God's omniscient, right? And he, he doesn't get hot. So he's going to walk in the cool of the day, and he's looking around like, uh, kids, what's up? I don't see you. You know, we're playing some kind of hide-and-seek here? I think what we're seeing in that is this emphasis, this idea that God is dwelling and abiding in his creation. So here is, this is a, to me a critical observation, that God did not rest from his creation, he rested in his creation. Very, very, very different connotation of the idea of rest. <clears throat> but of course, as God's walking through the garden, looking for them, it's because of something bad that's happened, Adam and Eve have sinned, there's disobedience and exile, where they are cast out of the garden. And this is another one of those areas where like, okay, if all of the earth is a utopia until they've sinned, and everything like goes haywire, well, that's gonna apply inside the garden as well as outside. So what's the whole deal with being kicked out? Right, if it's just about the tree of life, put a little barrier around the tree, good to go. No, they get kicked completely out of the garden. When you understand this concept of God resting in his temple, that's this abiding, walking, dwelling presence, to be sent away from that is to be sent away from where God's presence is dwelling. All right, so, big theme. We've just talked about Genesis. We're gonna look at how this goes all the way through to Revelation. And normally when I'm doing uh, Sunday school kinds of classes, I like to get engagement. That's kind of challenging for this particular topic because in order to demonstrate a theme that goes from beginning to end, you, you just have to like see all of these verses, right? So that doesn't give a lot of opportunities for, what do you think about this? Like, so buckle up, <clears throat> Genesis to Revelation. As the people are coming out of Egypt, they are told to make a sanctuary where God says, I may dwell in their midst. A mobile tabernacle, the Hebrew word for tabernacle, scheme, the literal translation is dwelling place. So God makes provision that as they are traveling towards the promised land, that God's presence will be with them symbolized by this tabernacle, this temple presence. Uh, they are told, 
because Yahweh your God walks in the midst of your camp to deliver you and give, your, give up your enemies to you, therefore your camp must be holy because God's presence is there. Tabernacle and promise in Exodus, God says, you will bring, or Moses says of God, you will bring them in and plant them on your own mountain. So we see that mountain, cosmic mountain motif revisited. The place, O Yahweh, which you have made for your abode, the sanctuary which your hands have established. God says, I will make my dwelling among you and my soul shall not abhor you and I will walk among you and will be your God and you shall be my people. So we're going to see this repeated theme marching through scripture of this dwelling. God desires to be among his people. Of course, we try to mess things up at every second turn. So you have rebellion at, as the people of Israel were coming up to the land of Canaan. Instead of just going in like they were supposed to, right? They rebelled, like, we just want to go back to Egypt. What are you, you're bringing us out here just to die. And they end up getting told, all right, you're going to wander around for 40 years in the wilderness. And God says, uh, and, oh, this is interesting. I didn't put the, uh, the, the, the scripture reference on this one. Uh, but for 40 years, I loathed that generation and said, they are a people who go astray in their heart and they have not known my ways. Therefore, I swore in my wrath, they will not enter my rest. So we're starting to see the, the linkage of rest, dwelling, mountain of God. Uh, <clears throat> now, one of the things that's fascinating to me about a verse like this, that God speaking in terms of, if you read it that by itself, it's just like, you know, I don't wanna have anything to do with you. You guys go off for 40 years, do your thing, get back to me when you're, when you're done, when this generation has died off. And yet God still makes provisions to be with them, even in spite of, of their sin. Where we read in other places in Deuteronomy, where it talks about God uh, taking care of them where they're their shoes did not wear out, their garments did not wear out, and he provides manna for them in the wilderness in spite of their disobedience. But nonetheless, they are experiencing an exile because it is in that land of Canaan where God has promised, that is where my presence is going to dwell, where I will walk among my people, and so they're experiencing this exile. Fast forward a little bit, so get through the period of the judges, we have our first king uh, with Saul. Second king is David. And David has it in his heart that, you know, I live in a palace and God's dwelling place is still in this tent. So I want to build a temple. So instead of, same idea, you know, tabernacle and temple are not different in concept. You just got one that's like mobile and a tent and one that has permanence. So David's intention was, he had it in his heart, to build a house of rest for the Ark of the Covenant of Yahweh and for the footstool of God. So it's interesting you find in various parts of Scripture where it's acknowledged 
that you don't, God cannot be contained in a building. Right? God's dwelling is in heaven, and so they'll talk about the, his robe spilling over into the temple, or the temple is his footstool. And yet there are times where God's Shekinah glory fills that temple in a very real, tangible way. God's response to David, most of you probably recall, is like, I'm, I'm happy that you thought that, but you're not the one. You'll have a son that will come along and will do that. God says to David, I have not lived in a house, lived in, since the day I brought out the people of Israel from Egypt to this day, but I have been moving about in a tent for my dwelling. When Solomon does come along and does build the temple, in his dedication, he says of, to God, Arise now, O Lord, go to your resting place, you and the ark of your might. So in spite of our sense of resting is just kind of a place where you go and hang out, chill out, sip on margaritas, this is a very, very different sense of rest. It's this abiding presence dwelling among his people, walking among them. We get to the Psalms. So I was just in my kind of normal morning read. I thought it was remarkable that like Tuesday of this, this week, I was actually in Psalm 132 and this stuff's just jumping off the page to me where the psalmist says, let us go to his dwelling place. Let us worship at his footstool. The idea of the, the temple not being able to contain all of God. Uh, Arise, O Yahweh, and go to your resting place, you and the ark of your might, for Yahweh has chosen Zion, which is a mountain. He has desired it for his dwelling place. This is my resting place forever. Here I will dwell, for I have desired it. <clears throat> Fast forward, right? We saw all those verses uh, from First and Second Kings with all of the, the kings that were disobedient, repeated, repeatedly going to sacrificing on all of these other high places to other gods, or even perhaps in the name of Yahweh, but still doing it in unauthorized ways. Eventually, they experience uh, exile, right? They're, conqu they're conquered, they're carted off, taken away from the land of Canaan, and they again experience exile. The psalmist here says, for they provoked him to anger with their high places. They moved him to jealousy with their idols. When God heard, he was full of wrath, and he utterly rejected Israel. He forsook his dwelling the tent where he dwelt among mankind. But again, we read in many other places where God still accompanies his people, where we read of things like Daniel, Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego that are experiencing God's providence in these foreign lands. God also never leaves his people with a sense of complete loss or uncertainty about what is yet to come. So looking forward, uh, Ezekiel, so we're still at the time before Christ, but looking ahead, says, God says, I will set my sanctuary in their midst forever. My dwelling place shall be with them, and I will be their God, and they will be my people. And of the coming Messiah, 
particularly, he says, the spirit of Yahweh will rest upon him, the Messiah. There will be no harm in all my holy mountain, and of him the nations inquire, and his resting place shall be glorious. So now going from simply thinking of God to this Messiah. This actually chokes me up. <clears throat> the word became flesh and dwelt among us. I can't tell you how many times I've, I've read that verse. You just kind of read over the top of it. But when you start to see that in the context of all of the stuff that comes from Genesis all the way up to that point of God not resting from his creation, but resting in his creation, and here we have the creator God coming in flesh and dwelling among his people to the point where Jesus himself refers to himself as the temple. Jesus says to the, the, the Jews around him, destroy this temple and in three days I will raise it up. All right, between Christ and the final consummation, that's where we are today. First Corinthians, Paul says, do you not know that your body is a temple of the Holy Spirit within you whom you have from God? So our, individually, our bodies are a temple of the Holy Spirit. And again, when you start attaching that to what all of that means, that temple presence, and it's not just individuals, we also see it corporately. Where in Ephesians, we see you are fellow citizens with the saints and members of the household of God, built on the foundation of the apostles and prophets, Christ Jesus himself being the cornerstone in whom the whole structure being joined together grows into a holy temple in the Lord. In him you are also being built together into a dwelling place for God. Hebrews 4, we're just going to like take a, a few little excerpts from Hebrews 4, where the writer of Hebrews notes that creation, specifically says God rested on the seventh day from his works, notes the disobedience and the wanderings, where God says, I swore in my wrath, they will not enter my rest. So there you explicitly see a connection between the rest that God takes at the end of the six days of creation and this rest of God's dwelling presence. And this kind of wraps up in Hebrews 4. For if Joshua had given them rest, God would not have spoken of, it, of another day later on. So then there remains a Sabbath rest for the people of God. For whoever has entered God's rest has also rested, past tense, from his works as God did from his, let us therefore strive to, future tense, enter that rest. So many of us have heard this like repeated phraseology of the, the now and not yet. So many things in scripture, there's a, a present tense or even past tense that's already achieved in Christ. And yet, there is something else to come. 
And we see it here with this rest in the new heavens and the new earth. Where in Revelation, so we've just done this sprint from Genesis to Revelation, John says, I saw the holy city, New Jerusalem, coming down out of heaven. Behold, the dwelling place of God is with man, and he will dwell with them. And I saw no temple in that city, for its temple is the Lord God Almighty and the Lamb. So there is a, a very real sense, I'm just taking a, a little minute to elaborate on what's up here, that many people will talk about the new heavens and the new earth being a return to Eden, and yet when you look in Scripture, there's a whole lot of stuff that we're told about the, what to expect in the new heavens and the earth that are not the same as Eden. Things like the sea being no more, and I think Les may have actually mentioned that last week or two weeks ago, and there's a, a whole bunch of things like that. Instead, what we're seeing in this picture is what Eden was always intended to be. That when the Garden of Eden is established, God has this mission for that cosmic mountain to expand to eventually encompass the entire earth. And when we get to Revelation, that's exactly what we see with the new temple, or with the new Jerusalem coming down from heaven, filling the landscape from far west, as far east as you can go, and even extending high up into the heavens. That it is what Eden was intended to become, a place where God would forever dwell, abide, and walk, resting in his temple with his people. All right, we've got five minutes that we can spend with questions or discussion. <laughs> yeah, that Earl shared that that, that shoot, completely shoots down the idea of heaven being a boring place where all you're doing is strumming on that harp, wondering how long is this going to last. Yes, when there's not a lot of questions or discussion, that, that usually means one of two things. One is that like things just like went completely over people's heads. Or the other is just like, Whoa, <laughs> like they're just like mind blowing. Like, I don't even know where to start. So, uh oh, so you went right to the ladder. Thank you. If it was the first, I'd be like bummed. So, <laughs> uh, the question was Is there an actual Mount Zion, or is that more of a, a symbolic thing? Uh, yes, there is a, a, a so when you hear about in Jerusalem the Temple Mount they are talking about Mount Zion. So it was an, an actual place that the first temple was built on. It's the same place where the second temple was built after it was raised. And it continues to be in that general area the source of international conflict where the Muslim Dome of the Rock, many think, is actually built exactly on the spot where the original temple was. Uh, so question was, uh, or observation, was that the, we have scriptures that talk about us individually being the temple of the Holy Spirit, uh, and we have references to the body corporately being the, the, the temple 
of, of God, of the Holy Spirit. Uh, so how does that relate to a gathering together in particular? Um, I won't pretend to have like the answer to that, but if I'm reflecting on things like, you know, whether two or more are gathered in his name, his presence is there, that there's a, I think when it talks about the, the corporate body being a temple of the Holy Spirit, that there is a sense of a gathering of that body, right? That it's not just 10 Christians that are in, you know, never see each other, that are scattered across the globe. They are somehow a part of the, the corporate body. It's, I think it's related more to the idea of them gathering together, that they then is a, a, ref, a reflection of a place where God dwells among his people. But it's also very encouraging that when, when you're talking about like the individuals, you know, that the poor individual that, that finds themselves in a cell, prison cell, isolated from anybody else, that they are not removed from the presence of God because they, of the inability to be able to, to corporately join others. Yeah, so, the, so there was a, a, for those on the far side that may not have heard all of that, uh, was kind of revisiting the idea of the, the, the cultures around them that had some things that were very, very similar to what we find in the Bible, some things different, and that you've got some people that want to discount anything they find in the Bible as just being kind of borrowed. And yet, uh, we have some of the things that we find in the Bible and in those surrounding cultures actually speak to a, a very likely shared common experience. So mention the flood in particular, that so many of these cultures uh, have a, some kind of a story about a catastrophic flood that encompassed a large part or all of humanity that, you know, that I remember when the, like the Gilgamesh epic was first discovered, people immediately went to, uh, it predates the, the, the Genesis flood, it was just borrowed. With no sense of, you know, the, the time in which something was discovered or written has nothing to do with the time in which the story originated. And there can be a, it's very likely that these commonalities have a root in some actual event that occurred in human history. Uh, I'll just give really quickly two examples of other examples where God taps into a common culture without correcting and one where he refers to common culture and corrects. If you look at covenant language in scripture, Discoveries of ancient Hittite and Assyrian uh, treaties between a conquering king and the vassal, they're called suzerain vassal treaties. When you see the structure of those, the biblical covenants line up amazingly well. And again, I think it's not that this is borrowed, but that it's tapping into something that the people of Israel are familiar with in order to anchor the theological understanding. But when you get to the nature of the gods, oh my, Genesis has a complete polemic that's going after like, nope, Yahweh God is nothing like the gods of Egypt that you came out of. And you know, here, here's a whole litany of examples and reasons why. All right, that uh, we'll concludes our time. So thank you all. And oh, my wife's reminding me to close in prayer. All right, thank you. Uh, Lord, thank you so much for the opportunity to be able to uh, join with my brothers and sisters and be able to, to share some of the things that I've had the privilege and, and blessing of being able to explore. 
And we pray that you would give us a greater sense of your abiding, dwelling presence among us, that we might be in awe and in appreciation and to realize that we are standing and walking among holiness. Amen.